so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. I would be the one who would hack into the American Airlines system and go, <laughs> That really is kind of weird if you think about it. <laughs> that is the type of hacker I want to be. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week is, oh, I'm trying to think of new ways to introduce you. Nope, just say Leatherwood. Back with me once again. Back with me once again, two weeks in a row, which is really a phenomenon, is Brent Leatherwood. Welcome to the show. And it almost didn't happen this morning. Because you got stuck? Well, no, because I, I was talking to this conference and, and I, I was kind of thinking, you know what, I could I could probably stay there for a few minutes longer and, and not come in the studio. And left me hanging. Yeah, well, maybe. It's not a very presidential move. No, no, no. I mean, I had the forethought and thankfully the... I was convicted. You needed to fulfill your duties and not leave me hanging. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and talk about what's been happening lately. And we'll start with what the ERLC has been featuring this week. And our first piece is by Caden Christian, who actually was an intern of ours this past summer and has now come on staff. Yay, Caden. We are so glad that he is joining the team. And he did an interview with a really neat organization that Brent actually shared on Twitter. So I'll let him tell you about that. But it's titled The Need to Serve Pregnant Women on College Campuses, an interview about Baby Steps at Auburn University. Now, while Baby Steps is not a faith-based organization, they are doing work that is what we would say as Christians is consistent with a biblical ethic of human dignity and the sanctity of life. They help women on Auburn University's campus who find themselves pregnant parent their children, and finish their education. So the founder and then the director of operations now, uh, both were in similar situations. And they share in the interview, both women felt that they had to choose between either life for their child and parenting their child or finishing their degree. And they didn't feel like they had the resources available to help them do both. So the founder actually chose to end the life of her child the director of operations did not. And they were able to come together and begin this organization and serve these women and provide either residential care or uh, just care outside of actually living in their facilities. It's an amazing organization. And again, while they're not faith-based, their example is certainly something that Christians should be emulating uh, because of what we believe the Bible teaches about the sanctity of every single human life. So post-Dobbs, We're going to have to get creative with ways that we can support vulnerable mothers and help them to choose life for their children. And not only that, but if they choose to parent their child instead of making an adoption plan, we help support them along the way. 
So I love Baby Steps and the example that they're setting. They're actually looking to expand to other college campuses, which is incredible. So stay tuned for news about that because they are hopeful that that will happen sometime in the near future. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I love the fact that we're highlighting this organization particularly this week uh, with the the White House uh, announcing new initiatives to direct resources that are pro-choice in nature, pro-abortion in nature to our nation's colleges and, and universities. And the fact that we were able to highlight an organization that is actually doing this kind of work, uh, this kind of pro-life, pro-mom, pro-baby work at a university is incredible timing. So kudos to you for for setting that up, Lindsay. And I actually, I highlighted uh, this organization, Baby Steps. Um, I was speaking earlier uh, today on the day that we're recording this. I was speaking earlier today to a conference and it was a group of pastors and they were just asking like, who are some other organizations out there that we can be working with? And I talked about the specific need of mothers on college campuses who, you know, they're pregnant and they think, well, I'm not going to be able to pursue the rest of my education uh, because of this. Or the even more insidious kind of thought being, I need to take the life of this child in order to pursue my education. And organizations like Baby Steps, they come in and wrap around that mother and provide her with materials or even, I, I love this, housing uh, so that they can be in an environment where they can have the child and raise the child while they continue pursuing their, their college degree. I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful story. I'm so glad that uh, we were able to highlight them. And uh, even though it is not a Christian organization, uh, they love having Christian volunteers and volunteers of, of any background uh, who are interested in serving these mothers and, um, Gosh, that we not only need to support organizations like this, we need to be developing them out of our churches. And I know that a number of churches have uh, ministries uh, that come around uh, mothers who are in these situations and feel like they have no support, feel like there is no hope, uh, feel like maybe the only way out is Planned Parenthood's preferred avenue uh, of abortion. And um, we need to be the people who are ready to serve. And I'm thankful that our churches are doing it. Uh, in many ways, I'm thankful for Baby Steps, organizations like Baby Steps, uh, who are wrapping around these mothers uh, so that they can flourish and their children can live and flourish as well. And some might say, well, why does a woman need to raise her child and finish her college degree? Just give up the college degree and take care of your child. But the reality is that for a woman to be able to have opportunities more opportunities and the provision to be able to take care of her child, an education and a college degree helps greatly. It matters. And so completing that degree will enable them to be able to more than likely care better for their children and not face as many obstacles. The other thing is I uh, want to give credit where credit is due. A shout out to our colleagues, Amanda Hayes, for bringing this organization to my attention. And then, of course, Caden for developing some questions and, and doing the initial conversations. And then the Lord always causes the timing of this to line up. It just is amazing how that happens. So really the credit is due to him for the timing of this coming out. And then the second piece that I want to highlight today is really important. It's by Jason Thacker. And what it's describing is a bit complicated, but the reality of the situation is not complicated. And that's what the title of the piece is. And it's titled, 
the disastrous moral harm of California's transgender refuge bill. And that's exactly what it is. It is a disaster. So I'll read from the beginning. On September 28th, Governor Gavin Newsom signed a controversial new bill designed to promote California as a place of, in quotes, refuge and sanctuary for those seeking gender-affirming care. This is in response to how many states have sought to ban these types of medical treatments for youth and to punish medical providers and or parents who allow it. After signing this bill into law, Newsom touted the openness and inclusivity of California as he decried the 22 Republican-led states who are currently seeking to block gender-affirming care for youth and children as demonizing and promoting hate towards transgender youth. So really seeking life-altering changes for your body as it relates to transgenderism is harmful. And then when you put into play that these that we're talking about youth, here and uh, youth outside of their parents' care and calling your state a place of refuge for these children to permanently alter their bodies before they can even drive is just lunacy. This bill has three main components that Jason highlights, and they are just frustrating. So basically, law enforcement can't intervene from another state that does not permit this to happen California doesn't have to comply with an out-of-state subpoena seeking health or other related information for people who come to California to receive this kind of care. And then it prohibits law enforcement participation in the arrest or extradition of an individual that criminalizes allowing a person to receive or provide gender-affirming health care. So it basically, youth and children can come and have these life-altering procedures done to them without, without anyone intervening including their parents, who are the ones who should be able to make the decisions about this and should be aware of this. So I'm thankful that Jason wrote about this. At the end, he talks about how Christians can think about these issues, how we need to be sober-minded, the importance of the family, and how we must speak to these matters. And I'll just end with this from Jason's piece. Christians must remember it's not loving to speak a lie or affirm something that is simply not true, no matter the cultural pressure to do otherwise. We also must do so remembering that those caught in these lies are made in the very image of God and deserve our love and care. Many of us know and deeply care for those in our communities and families who are walking through these types of issues. Regardless of one's sexual brokenness, there is hope in the name of Jesus for radical transformation, just as there is for all who sin. Well, so the one of the concerning aspects of this, that I mean, there are a multitude, as you just put it, Lindsay, but the proponents of this bill, they will try and say, no, this is this is actually supporting families. Uh, but in fact, it is it is going directly at families uh, and it is trying to put government between parents and their and their children. And that should just be offensive to us as Christians. Uh, that That is not uh, an appropriate place for the state unless we are talking about, you know, some sort of an abusive situation. But here it's almost the exact opposite because of what you said. Individuals who do want to irreparably change their bodies, they're, they're basically being invited to do this. It's almost, you know, we talk about states like California becoming uh, doing uh, abortion tourism and becoming a destination for abortion. Well, here they're doing almost like transgender tourism. And uh, that is just so concerning. And we don't need elected officials and policymakers 
creating these sorts of environments where the state is somehow putting itself in in the place uh, of parents. And so to underscore what I'm, I'm saying here, Jason writes this in the piece. This type of bill seeks to put the family in the crosshairs of the sexual revolution by prioritizing the autonomy of youth and children over that of their parents. Parents by natures are there to protect, care for, and seek the best for their children, regardless of what the state may promote. The family is tasked by God with this grave responsibility and to give an account for how they raise their children into mature and wise adults. Youth and children are simply ill-equipped to make these life-altering decisions. And any provision that severs the unity of the family should be immediately called into question and subsequently rejected. And that's true. This bill is is going to create more friction in, in families. And I think we need to acknowledge the reality. There are parents out there that are looking for help because they do have children who are wrestling with, I don't feel like I think I should, uh, or I don't feel like maybe I you know should perceive to be. And gender dysphoria is a, a real clinical thing that, that some kids deal with. What we have found, though, is in many instances, if parents take a, a more patient approach uh, and they walk with their children through that season, oftentimes they come out of it. Uh, I, I want to say the statistic was 80% come out of it and, and come back to kind of what their biblically designed role is as a male or a female. And so that said, it can be incredibly straining on parents, and and we need to realize that and recognize that. But a solution like this that the state of California, and I'm sure additional states will follow uh, soon thereafter, what they're proposing is actually not a solution. And it's certainly not a solution uh, that is God-honoring and recognizes uh, the inherent dignity of these individuals. And in fact, it it undermines uh, the dignity uh, that we are given as image bearers. And so uh, we're going to keep following this sorts of legislation and speaking out against it uh, and making sure that uh, our churches are informed about it so that our pastors uh, have what they need, the resources they need to proclaim the truth from the pulpit. Absolutely. And we believe that, well, God is truth and he's the author of truth. And he, because of the fall, we our, our minds are affected. We don't even think right about things. So like you were mentioning the parental rights part, even the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, he said, in California, we believe in equality and acceptance. We believe that no one should be prosecuted or persecuted for getting the care they need. Parents know what's best for their kids, and they should be able to make decisions around the health of their children without fear. We must take a stand for parental choice, but at the same time, taking away parental choice. And we know that by God's spirit, the truth of God's word is the only thing that's going to help us with these, as we say, noetic effects of the fall, helping us think rightly about what's true and noble and excellent and praiseworthy and not live in this state of cognitive dissonance that ends up harming people in the name of refuge and in the name of safety, which it's not. It's not safety and it's not refuge. And so as we continue to to work on these issues and pray about them, we do have confidence that the power of God's word and that backed up by our actions and caring for people will, will bring about transformation one heart at a time. As I always say, there are a lot of other resources on our site for this week, so I would encourage you to check those out. But for now, Brent, that's a look at what's happening on ERLC.com. 
And now for our culture section, Brent, why don't you let us know some of the biggest stories of this week? Yeah, with some of the biggest stories of the week, we're covered by Baptist Press. And so our first two stories are actually going to come to us from BP. And this first article, it's huge. It says National Cooperative Program Giving tops $200 million for the first time since 2008. Lindsay, where were you in 2008? I was uh, graduating from Southern Seminary, actually. Well, there you go. I guess it depends what time in 2008, but yeah. Just the year 2008. And then I was searching for a job after that. There you go. So this comes to us directly from the story. In the midst of ongoing financial challenges related to the economic aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic, Southern Baptists have given more than $200 million to the National Cooperative Program Allocation Budget for the first time since 2008. Giving for the 2021-22 fiscal year totaled $200,400,000, becoming the first time in 14 years that CP giving topped the $200 million mark. Even in a year full of challenges, SBC President Barb Barber celebrated the milestone, saying, quote, the generosity of our churches this year demonstrates that this model of cooperation still enjoys the confidence and favor of our churches. And that's absolutely right. Throughout the year, we've been tracking giving and we thought, okay, it, it's going to be above budget, which, you know, praise God that that's the case because our CP giving from our churches that is faithfully and sacrificially given uh, by individuals attending those churches, it was trending up uh, and, and that money powers each of the ministries of uh, the entities of the SBC, of our state conventions. It ensures that we are placing missionary missionaries on the field uh, overseas, that we are planting churches, that we're able to do Baptist uh, disaster relief in places like Florida after this most recent hurricane. And so uh, all of us were pretty hopeful that it would be over, but uh, did not see it heading over $200 million. That is such a significant investment. And as President Bart Barber said, it means that the SBC still believes in the cooperative program and all of the good it can do to spread the gospel overseas, here at home, and in the public square. And I'm just so thankful uh, that our churches have made this kind of faithful investment into cooperation. And you, nobody is ever going to get me to say that the cooperative program is anything but amazing. As someone who has only for a short period of time I think I mentioned this last week, had to raise support for a ministry position at one point, knowing people who have had to raise support. The, don't get me wrong. The Lord provides, and that's amazing to see. And when people give because they believe in you and how the Lord's going to use you to advance the gospel, that's amazing. But this removes that, I don't want to say stumbling block, but it is a difficulty and it's a time-consuming thing. And you constantly have to give attention to it when your support drops off, you've got to raise more. So the cooperative program is just, I love it. And I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that it's CP Giving's over. As Jonathan Howe said on Twitter as well, there's a record Lottie Moon giving over 200 million, record Annie Armstrong giving at nearly 70 million, and then the cooperative program at over $2 million, $200 million, sorry. So it's all incredible. And I'm, I'm thankful for how the Lord is moving people's hearts to give generously so that the point is so that we can do more work to meet people's physical needs, and more importantly, by doing that, remove any hindrance to be able to meet their greatest need, which is their spiritual need uh, for salvation through Christ. Absolutely. All right, our next story also comes to us from Baptist Press, and it is about the HHS 
uh, proposed rule that touches on the transgender mandate that we have talked about previously. So the story says this, the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission has urged the Biden administration to retract a proposed rule it says would violate the consciences of individuals and entities that object to gender transition procedures. The URLC filed public comments on Monday, October 3rd, with the Department of Health and Human Services regarding a proposal the commission says would require medical professionals, clinics, and hospitals to perform and health insurance companies to cover procedures to which they object. The letter expressed opposition to the HHS revision of a section of the 2010 Affordable Care Act, which some of us know is Obamacare. The proposed change, announced in late July, would bar discrimination on the basis of sex, which HHS defines as including sexual orientation and gender identity. The reinterpretation of sex discrimination would also include pregnancy termination or abortion. So uh, we filed public comments. Uh, these can be found attached to the, the story itself. But essentially what the Biden administration is proposing to do is to redefine sex in such a broad manner uh, that it encompasses all of these other areas, things that aren't actually related to sex, whether you are a male or a female. And because of that, that has the great potential to uh, force doctors, force medical professionals, force insurance companies to basically abandon their conscience and have to participate in things such as uh, a gender reassignment surgery. Uh, and that is very concerning for us uh, because not only is this going to have the effect of paving over consciences, uh, forcing people to go against their their deeply held convictions, their deeply held religious convictions, it's going to, as we said earlier, end up causing people to make decisions where irreparable harm uh, is is done, and in uh, because it also includes uh, abortion. Uh, it's going to lead to people participating in in procedures that end life. We need to speak forcefully into this, uh, and that's what these public comments are. And just a quick guide for that: essentially, any time. A federal agency uh, proposes a change. Uh, they have to make that public, and they have to invite the public to file comments, either in support or opposition to it. But then they are duty bound to respond to the the issues and perspectives uh, that are raised. So we have formally filed these comments as DRLC on behalf of our convention of churches, and I am interested to see uh, how the administration responds to ours and other like-minded organizations. Uh, there were a number of our peers and allies and partners out there that filed comments uh, on this proposal. And so I'm, I'm very interested to see how the administration uh, moves forward. So what would be the next steps here? And is there any thought as it regards timeline? Yeah, so they are duty-bound to respond. And there have been instances where based on comments that are received, policies do change. At a minimum, what I would hope is that before this were to go into effect, there is some sort of increased protection for religious liberty, for conscience protection. That's the bare minimum. So we'll, we'll just have to see. Once again, this is evidence to me of the noetic effects of the fall, the just how our thinking is marred by sin. We don't think straight. The fact that biological sex, these 
as we say, pre-political realities that are uh, built into how God designed us as male and female that cannot be changed. The fact that this administration would want to redefine this and make it include all of these other things that are not related, violate the consciences of so many is just unconscionable and it's... um, it is unacceptable, and I do hope that they will respond to all of those who have made public comments against this proposed policy. Yeah. I mean, just so you know, we formally asked them to rescind this, uh, to not move forward with it. Uh, do do I think that will uh, prevent them from doing so? Probably not. But we are on the record asking that this proposed rule be taken off the table. Um, so it, we will keep you informed Uh, once we receive some sort of uh, response from the Biden administration. All right, this last story comes to us from NBC News, and it is on the immigration front. An appeals court has sent the DACA case back to lower court to review the new Biden rule temporarily protecting dreamers. A federal appeals court granted a temporary reprieve Wednesday to hundreds of thousands of young immigrants enrolled in a program allowing them to work and study in the U.S. without fear of being deported. But it's unclear how long it will last. The ruling by the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals directs the lower court judge who found that the decade-old Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program was unlawful to take into consideration a new rule issued by the Biden administration. It allows the program to go forward, but only for current DACA recipients known as DREAMers, not new applicants. The rule review could preserve DACA for at least several more months, but its future is far from assured, especially given the current more conservative composition of the U.S. Supreme Court. A Justice Department spokesperson said in a statement that the agency respectfully disagrees with the decision and will continue to vigorously defend the lawfulness of DACA as this case proceeds. So probably a couple definitional things to remind people of. There are a class of immigrants who are here who were brought into the United States at a very young age. Think of minors, toddlers, babies, newborns, who were brought to the United States, and they had no say in the matter, right? Their parents were the ones that that brought them here. Those individuals... The context that they have only ever known in their lives is American, and they rightfully think of themselves as Americans. Uh, But their parents did not formally go through the process of uh, becoming legalized. And so they're trapped in this situation where they're not, by birth, U.S. citizens, their parents are not legally here, and so they're put in this category called DREAMers. The DACA program is a program that allows them to stay, but it's not in law. It is essentially administrative action. And that's where this becomes problematic. As a matter of fact, the RLC now, since the beginning of the DACA program, has said, we are, we are thankful for the spirit to try and have compassion and help these individuals out who, by all rights, they're Americans. But we want Congress to be the ones to act on this and legislatively create this program. It, it, it shouldn't be created and implemented because of executive action. Uh, a, because the program can just basically be created. It can also be uh, taken down by just switching out whoever is in the White House. Instead, it should be Congress that creates these sorts of permanent programs to help individuals like this. 
And so that is uh, that has been our stance now for for many years, uh, and it will continue to be. We we want to help these individuals, and we're glad that there are indivi- there are leaders uh, who want to help them uh, and, and give them the dignity of pursuing a path to become legalized uh, citizens. But at the same time, we feel it needs to be Congress that needs to take action here. And it is so frustrating to help this particular group of people where there is bipartisan support uh, that Congress cannot come together to find the solution. It is incredibly frustrating because these individuals, these students, uh, many of which are are now older, uh, they're just left in this very precarious situation uh, where they're allowed to, you know, pursue jobs or education, and then they face the threat of deportation the, the next month. It's that certainly lacks a lot of compassion. That's what I was just going to say. That it's an issue of compassion, and of course, we have to be wise in in issues dealing with immigration. It's complicated. But I think of myself, and it's like if somebody just decided to. It, well, not decided to. If I was deported today back to Europe, areas in Europe where my family came from, I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know the culture. I grew up here. I didn't don't know anything. I can't imagine how terrifying that would be, how frightening, how disorienting. Uh, so I'm thankful for the ERLC's work here. I'm thankful for the stance that we take. Surely, in the midst of all the complicated conversations about immigration, we can have compassion for the individuals who are facing these realities. We can have compassion there. And you have to separate it out from the wider uh, immigration uh, discussion, right? We can be a people who want to have compassion on on this select group of individuals and help them out of the situation that they're in through legislative means and, and legal means. And at the same time, we can also be a people that want our borders protected and, and defended uh, and, and not be just, you know, so porous and want a strengthened system that allows for individuals who want to come here and pursue their lives and their flourishing. We can want a robust system that allows for that. And all of those things can be held together in a consistent fashion. There's a lot of voices out there that want to separate them or make you think one thing about the other. And so therefore all of it, no. Uh, I think the Christian response is we need to help people who are in need and let's be an advocate uh, for those who are marginalized and those who are forgotten. And at the same time, we can want uh, the best for the city that we have been called to live in, the country that we have been called to live in, and ask our government to do more to, to keep us protected and, and safe. And uh, just based on the history of America, ask for a, a system that allows uh, for those individuals who are either fleeing persecution or, or just wanting to seek a better life for themselves and their families uh, to be able to come here and, and be Americans. Well, and that's what I was going to say. Again, even in rightly wanting protected borders and right uh, legal pathways to citizenship, you can still have a, a posture of compassion toward those who are coming to our borders and wanting to come through because of a good faith reason. Of course, not those who would want to cause trouble, but um, whether they are allowed to or not, we can still have a heart of compassion and not not it be an us versus them mentality. And this makes me thankful for 
the work of the ERLC, not because I want a job, because I work at the ERLC, but because these are such complicated matters. We're sinners. We're fallen human beings. So it makes coming up with solutions incredibly difficult. And that's why we need believers in the public square and in this space to be able to think wisely about these matters and advocate continually. So just as a last little fun cultural thing, last week we talked about Aaron Judge and the 61st home run uh, 61 years ago. And because you like baseball, I don't really like baseball because I just wasn't raised on it. But because you like baseball, I saw on the news that he actually did hit his 62nd home run. That's big news, right? Aren't you excited about that? I'm just trying to figure out why you don't like baseball. Well, it just wasn't raised on it. It's America's raised, pastime. I was it's raised America's on football. Pastime. Nobody eh. taught me to like baseball. So now when I watch it, I don't truly understand it. It just seems kind of a little boring. But, you know, I'll watch the big the big things like I, the World Series. Yeah, I feel like you need to have a Pauline conversion uh, here for, for baseball. And for I'm, baseball. I'm going to try and figure out how to orchestrate that. But yes, Aaron Judge hit his 60-second home run, which for baseball purists like me who call into question folks like Barry Bonds who hit 73 home runs uh, in a season and and he has the Major League Baseball record, I feel like there needs to be an asterisk uh, there. That was the word that we talked about last Mm -hmm. week, right? Yeah. But so Aaron Judge is, he doesn't have any sort of the... Uh, suspicions about him and the performance-enhancing drugs that that Barry Bonds had. And so this is just a great moment for baseball. What a great year for baseball. Him getting to 62 on the uh, next-to-last day of the season. Albert Pujols hitting 700 career home runs, uh, getting him into the the top four all-time. Just incredible. And the Braves. The Braves. The the Atlanta Braves. the, The official team of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, them winning their fifth straight division title, well on their way to defending their world championship. I am just pleased. This is a great time of year if you're a sports fan. Got baseball playoffs. College football is back and just in the middle of their season. This is not a great time of year if you are a Florida Gators football fan. Not sure there's really any uh, great time of year for that. Yes, there used to be, but not these days. Maybe summer when there are no... Gator Athletics. Uh, You're just jealous. Going on. Jealous of Albert, Albert the Crocodile, the Gator, I mean, not the Crocodile. So, yeah. <laughs> Albert the Alligator. But no, it was, so. a, it was a big week in baseball, so I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Well, yeah. go sports. Go all the sports teams. <laughs> go sports things. <laughs> we uh, love sports around here. Yes. And maybe that'll feels like, give us— It feels like I'm doing a podcast with, with Mitt Romney. Yes. Uh, because he, he loves to talk about sport, the world of sport. The world of sport. Yes. Maybe so. that will give us a reason to celebrate with uh, Hattie B's hot chicken or something like that. Maybe. There you go. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Thank mm-hmm. you.